Real quick before we get to the show, just a couple of notes for you guys. Uh, the first segment of the podcast, you can hear that my audio is a little bit off. I had a problem with my microphone. That's something I'll get. I got fixed for the second half of the show and something that I'll make sure is not a problem going forward. It's a, a young podcast and uh, we're learning as we go along. But uh, second note, after I got done recording the first solo segment, uh, Jordan Birch, South Carolina defensive, uh, defensive lineman, uh, announced his commitment to the Ducks. Um, this is just a massive deal. We spent some time in the in the solo part of the show talking about Birch and how I felt really good about his uh, his standing with Oregon and the staff felt good about him committing there. Uh, it did end up coming to fruition. Uh, I can't understate how big of a deal this is for the Ducks. This is a former five star recruit. He was the number eight player in the nation in the twenty 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 recruiting class. Um, he's just a, a huge huge get for this defensive line and. Uh, you look at some of the guys that Oregon's getting back this year and bringing in through the transfer portal with Birch and through uh, the 2023 recruiting class. I mean, you got Brandon Dorless, Casey Rogers, Popo Omavai, Taki Taimani, Jordan Birch, Mateo Uyunglele, uh Blake Purchase, Jaden Moore. I mean, I can keep going on and on. Uh, the defensive line is is now becoming a strength for Oregon. And after right after the offseason started, that was not the case when we, we knew that DJ Johnson was leaving and we thought Brandon Dorless might be leaving as well. So um, I don't want to talk too much about that right now. I get into Birch more uh, later in the episode, but just want to let you know those couple of quick notes. Let's get into the show. What's going on, everyone? Welcome into the newest episode of Scoing Long. I'm your host, Zach Neal. On today's podcast, we've got a loaded one for you. Uh, I considered breaking this one up into a couple of episodes, but I think we're going to try and squeeze it all together, give you guys a nice healthy dose of duck news going into the weekend. To start out, uh, we're going to talk a little bit of football. Surprisingly, there's actually a lot of a lot of news to get to. Uh, there's some transfer portal stuff. I uh, got an update on the Oregon Ducks coaching search when it comes to replacing Matt Pilage as the safeties coach. A couple of NFL draft decisions, uh, recruiting news, and then we're going to get into the scholarship count. Um, I've seen a lot of fans talking about that on social media and stuff, and there's some concern about the level of, uh, you know, scholarships that Oregon has on the current roster right now. So we're going to break down those numbers, look into it. After that, I'm really excited to bring on a couple of guests, uh, Eric Scopel with Duck Territory and Andy Patton, who writes with me at Ducks Wire. He's also with Locked On Zags, Locked On College Basketball. Um, we're going to bring both of them on separately. They're going to talk uh, men's and women's hoops for Oregon. Uh, like I said on, on Monday's episode, we're going to get a deeper dive into both of these teams and look at the, uh, we're about the halfway point of the season right now. So we're going to look at the second half and kind of review the first half for 16 games for both teams. Um, and then, you know, we're going to, I've got some exciting news that I want to tease for you. I can't really give all the news yet, but um, there's some interesting things to come for the podcast that I'm really excited to get to talk about. Uh, we've got a really good one here for you today. Let's get into it. as I record this, before we bring Eric Scopel on to talk about Kelly Graves and the women's basketball team, I just want to talk a little bit of football. Um, let's start with some transfer news. There is, there's a lot to get here. Um, the Ducks made another splash in the transfer portal on Tuesday. They got a commitment from Evan Williams, the free safety from Fresno State. 
this is a massive get for the Ducks. Um, we talked about this all offseason as a major, you know, area of need. And uh, he's a special player. Uh, we know that he's the younger brother of Bennett Williams, but I, I wrote on Ducks Wire on Tuesday about this. He's so much more than that. I mean, you take that simple little fact away. This is still one of the best safeties in the Mountain West. He was the first team uh, conference player, uh, I think, a couple of years ago. Uh, he is just, he's a really, really dynamic player. Uh, like I said on Monday's episode, 159 tackles in the past two seasons alone, four career interceptions, 12 pass, pass breakups over the last two years. He projects to be a day one starter for the Ducks. Um, you know, we don't really, we don't know exactly what the whole safety room looks like for Oregon going into 2023. Some guys like Brian Addison, Jamal Hill, Steve Stevens, they've yet to make the decision if they're coming back or not. I expect they will. Um, I don't see much of a, you know, I don't see their NFL draft stock being high enough this year to to warrant them opting out. Uh, you know, there's a potential that they could end up transferring. We don't, we'll get into some, some potential players there later. But um, at this point, I don't see why they wouldn't come back. But even with them, them being back in Eugene for 2023, Evan Williams is still a guy that can, can easily slot in day one and be a, a major impact player uh, you know, for the Ducks secondary and on that Ducks defensive roster. Uh, if you want to learn more about him, we've got a great profile up. Five things you need to know about Evan Williams on DucksWire. That's DucksWire.usatoday.com. Really, really cool player. And, you know, fans love Bennett Williams. He was a, a great player. I, I really liked covering. He was always awesome to, to talk to after games. Really well-spoken kid. He's got a great family. Um, and yeah, the, the fact that we're keeping, uh, the Williams family in Eugene is really exciting. Other transfer news. Um, I can confirm that South Carolina defensive line transfer Jordan Birch was in Eugene for a visit over the weekend. Uh, that was someone I was something I was kind of hinting at last episode that yeah, he, the ducks actually got him, uh, up to Eugene. Dan Lanning had him in Eugene. Uh, which is huge. That's that's absolutely huge. I mean, former five-star player, number eight player in the 2022 or 2020 class. Excuse me. Um, there's a lot of buzz about his recruitment right now. I know a couple of other uh, Oregon reporters have put in log predictions for the Ducks to finally land him. Um, I don't. I mean, you know, at USA Today, we don't do recruiting predictions or anything. But if I had a, an outlet to to make that prediction, I would say, yeah, I I feel pretty confident that. He's going to end up committing to the Ducks. And I know that the staff feels really good about where they sit with him, too. So um, I don't know when he's going to end up announcing his his commitment. He could end up taking, you know, visits to other schools. But uh, I know after that visit in Eugene this past weekend, uh, he feels good about the Ducks. And the Ducks staff feels very good about where they stand with him as well. A bit of a surprise transfer came on Tuesday night. Uh, Cam McCormick announced that he was entering the transfer portal. I know that fans, uh, a lot of fans love Cam McCormick. He's been in Eugene. They've certainly had uh, a long amount of time to get to know Cam. I should say he was entering uh, his eighth season of college football, which sounds insane. But, you know, when you look at his career with the number of injuries that he's gone through and uh, the the amount of waivers that he's had to, to play extra years, uh, it's it's just really insane. It's been a lot of fun to watch his career and kind of see him grit through all of the, uh, all of the pain and the injuries and stuff and keep coming back for more. Um, I was notified of this, this transfer a couple of days ago. I think it's tougher on fans than it is on the team. If that makes sense. Like I said, I mean, fans love this guy for a long time. He really, he, 
showed what it means to be a, a man of Oregon, an Oregon football player, if that makes sense. But as far as, you know, roster construction, I'm not sure that this hurts the Ducks um, as much as it may hurt fans. Um, you know, funny stat, hat tip to Eric Scopel on Duck Territory. McCormick is the last standing Mark Helfrich recruit, which is kind of insane that there's still a Mark Helfrich recruit on this roster going all the way back to when his career at Oregon ended. But um, you look at McCormick's stats, he played 13 games in 2022, which was by far the most he's played in his career. The, the second most was six games he played back in 2017. Um, he had 10 catches for 66 yards and three touchdowns. So yes, nice player. He contributed um, with the talent that Oregon is bringing in at tight end and that they have on the roster with Patrick Herbert. You've got four-star Kenyon Sadiq. You've got five-star tight end slash athlete Nicholas Harbour, who's potentially, you know, he's going to visit the Ducks later in January. We're going to talk about more about him later. But um, it's clear that Oregon likes where they are at with the tight end position. Um, I'm not sure that Cam fit into that per se. Um, I know that if he was on the roster, he'd have a role like he did last year. But I, I... I don't blame him for looking elsewhere. And if he's going to have one, potentially two more years in college football, he wants to to make the most of it and go somewhere where he's going to play a lot. I'm not sure that was at Oregon, um, but you know, I'm, I'm happy for him. I can't wait to see where he ends up. Um, but really, really special player, special person. There's a great profile from uh, the Oregonian Shane Scrapia that he did on him about his upbringing and, and kind of how he found football that I encourage you to go read. But you know, we wish all the best to Cam going forward. He's a, a really special person, and I just can't wait to see what's ahead for him. Let's talk a little bit about uh, Oregon safety's coaching search. Um, we found out, I think it was probably a couple weeks ago, actually it was during the middle of the, the Holiday Bowl game against North Carolina, that uh, Matt Pallage, the co-defensive coordinator and safety's coach for Oregon, was uh, rumored to be, you know, in the mix for the Baylor Bears defensive coordinator job, which is where he actually came from. Uh, it, it was announced the next day that, yes, Pallage was taking that job, which did not come as major surprise. He's a really good coach, strong ties to Texas. Like I said, he came to Eugene from Baylor as a safeties coach, was named the co-defensive coordinator here. Uh, so the past couple of weeks, Oregon's been searching for a new, a new safeties coach, and uh, I think that they're probably pretty close to announcing. Um, I've heard a name that I've been told is the guy uh, I'm not sure when it's going to come out. It could come out today. It could come out tomorrow. It could come out sometime this week. Um, but if the guy that I've been told is the actual hire is the guy, uh, I think Oregon fans should be pretty excited. He's a he's a really good coach. Um, I don't want to break the news because I'm you know I don't have it completely confirmed with multiple sources that this is the guy. But there's rumors swirling that um, they have their man and they're they're kind of locking in on that. But um, I would expect news on that to come out in the next couple of days, probably. Um, but we'll see. I think that it's it's going to be interesting to see how all of this plays with recruiting and with players choosing to stay or choosing to go. We talked about those safeties that uh, that still have to decide on Oregon's roster. But um, there's, I think we're probably getting to near the end of this coaching search for the Ducks. I mentioned on the last podcast that uh, the deadline for players to make their NFL draft decisions is on January 16th. Um, there's still a lot of guys on Oregon's roster that need to decide what they're going to do. It was funny, right after I, I stopped recording on Sunday, 
uh, Brandon Norlis, who was probably the number one guy that we were waiting to hear from, he made his decision that he's coming back to Oregon for 2023. Uh, and last night, uh, Tuesday night, Casey Rogers, another defensive lineman, announced that he's returning as well for 2023. That's just those are two huge additions. And then when you consider, I was I was actually wrong. I didn't think that Taki Taimani had announced whether he was staying or going. Uh, I looked back on his Twitter, and actually on December 28th, after the Holiday Bowl game, he said, hey, let's run it back. Um, so with those three people coming back, that's huge for the Ducks. Um, you, Those are some massive additions. And when you get the, you know, the possibility of adding someone like Jordan Birch, you got Mateo Uyunglele, five-star recruit. You got someone like Blake Purchase, who's a really, really talented four-star edge. Uh, top 150 player, I believe. Number one player in the state of Colorado that signed uh, the 2023 class. This is this is turning into be a really, really nice unit for the Ducks. Um, I know they struggled a bit in 2022. They didn't really have much of a pass rush, although the rush defense was really good. Um, it's quickly turning around to being, you know, one of the stronger units for, for Oregon's defense. Um, I'm currently working on a position outlook on Ducks Wire that kind of just runs through the depth chart um, at that position and, and goes through all the scholarship players. And uh, I teased earlier that we're going to talk about, uh, you know, some of the scholarship count. That could definitely be a position that sees some attrition over the next, you know, couple of months because at the moment there are 24 players, 24 scholarship players on Oregon's defensive line. Uh, that's a lot. When you get 85 max scholarships, you know, that's a lot of players at one position. So um, I wouldn't be surprised if we saw some transfers uh, coming up. There's a lot of guys that I think could play elsewhere that probably don't uh, fit into the depth chart at this point. But um, just talking about the NFL draft decisions, getting Dorless back, getting Rogers back, getting Taki Taimani back. Uh, those are all really big deals. And like I said, there's they're not done at that position yet. They might be adding someone like Jordan Birch uh, in the coming days, coming weeks. They've got some really nice recruits as well. Before we get into the scholarship count, uh, I want to talk recruiting for a little bit. Uh, just a quick update. Uh, five-star Nicholas Harbor. He's kind of been the talk of the town in Eugene over the past couple of weeks after he announced that he'd be taking a visit to Oregon at the end of January. Um, there was kind of kind of some skepticism on, you know, how much were the Ducks in his recruitment. I mean, they entered the game very late. Um, this is a really high, high-profile recruit, number 16 in the nation, probably one of the, you know, if not the number one remaining player on the board, the number two, probably behind tight end Deuce Robinson. Um, I've talked to some people in the program, and there's some, some real excitement. There's some smoke coming out of this. I know that people inside the program feel good about where they stand with Nicholas Harbor. Um, it's, you know, in the world of recruiting, that could turn into him committing somewhere else next week. You know, it, in recruiting, you can't say hard and fast rules that, you know, they feel good now, so he's going to commit to the Ducks. But I know that this this is a real thing, and it's not like the Ducks are just trying to get in on him late and, and see what they can do. They feel like they've got a really good shot to land him. And I know that his desire to, to run track and play football is huge for Oregon because they've got really, really good football and track programs. It's one of the preeminent schools in the nation at both, uh, in both sports. So uh, we're going to see how, I don't know if any more news about Nicholas is going to come out before his visit, but that's going to be a massive visit at the end of the month. They get the last official visit before signing day. We'll probably hear his announcement on February 1st. Um, but I, I feel really good about this. I know that the staff feels really good about it as well. So 
Um, that's something I'm going to keep my eyes on for the next couple of weeks. It could be that the Ducks have another massive splash at the end of this 2023 cycle and adding uh, potentially adding another five star to the mix. So um, I'm I'm really interested to see what goes on here in the next few weeks when it comes to Harbor. All right, I've talked about it a little bit. Let's get into the scholarship count. Uh, just for the details that those of you don't know, uh, D1 football teams they get 85 scholarships um, to you know to dole out to to players throughout the year. Um, the 85 minute there's not a, a date that I believe it has to be finalized. I'm not sure. I could be wrong on that. Please correct me if you know that I'm wrong on that. But uh, before fall camp, I know that the the roster has to be down to 85 scholarships. You've obviously got your walk-ons, your preferred walk-ons, all of that. But at the moment, uh, doing the math, Oregon's is at 94 on the roster. That's uh, current roster players that are expected back, plus signees, plus transfers. Um, you know, there's, I've just, you know, looking at fans online, there's some concern that we're bringing in all of these transfers. And the number one question is like, okay, how are we going to fit all of these players? We've got 94. How are we going to fit that in 85? Who's leaving? Who's going to be the next one? Um, you know, I'm I'm honestly not worried about it. It's we're going to see our transfers, and while we may not be down to to 85 before spring ball, a lot of the transfer portal window opens again after spring ball, and a lot of fans or a lot of players are going to see where they sit on the current depth chart. Uh, they're going to kind of get a feel for where they are, um, and they're going to end up transferring after that. So. Um, like I said, I expect some attrition probably on the defensive line. Um, that's, that's a major area where there's, there's some, it sounds wrong to say excess players because they're all really good players, but I'm not sure that everybody on that roster right now fits into the scheme, the landing and Tosh the ploy and Tony Tuioti have. So, um, there's, there's places throughout the roster where I'm sure people are going to going to try and, and see where they are at in spring ball. And if they don't like where their spot is on the depth chart, they're going to end up transferring. So, um, yeah, I, I'm sure that there's there's more players that Oregon's going to bring into the transfer portal. And they may sign one, two, potentially three more guys in the 2023 class. There's the, a chance this number can get up to, you know, almost close to 100. I don't think it's going to get to 100. But, you know, I would say for fans that are, are worried about that right now, just just take it easy. Don't panic. Um, it's, I, I have zero amount of concern. I honestly, I have no idea what happens if you don't get to down to the number 85. I think it's kind of just like, well, you have to, you, you don't get more scholarships than this. So one way or another, if you've got more than 85, some of those guys aren't getting scholarships. So, um, I don't think it's a big deal, but, um, yeah, it's, there's, there's still just, there's a lot more transfers to come. And that's why fans, you shouldn't panic when you do see some players transferring, because that's it's just part of the game at this point. That's what college football is now. People are going to move to to uh, find better spots for themselves and more power to them, as they should. If I was a college athlete and I wasn't getting playing time and I thought I deserved playing time, I would probably look for a new spot to play as well. Because that's what you I mean. You only get so many collegiate years and you want to play football and you actually want to want to do something that's fun and not just ride the bench the whole time. So there's going to be more transfers to come. Uh, Oregon's eventually going to get down to that 85 number one way or another. Um, but yeah, it's, it's going to be interesting, interesting to see which guys end up leaving and, uh, how much of an impact that has. Okay. Last thing before we head over to the hardwood, um, I want to throw out what we call in the industry, a big tease. Uh, there's potentially some exciting news coming in the next few days for the podcast. Um, 
I don't want to give anything uh, more than that away because I, I want to wait for it to be confirmed first. But um, I'll just say that elementary school age Zach would be jumping for joy right now if he heard the news, got the news that I got yesterday about the podcast. So um, keep your keep your ears to the ground for that. Keep your eyes up for that. Um, I hope that by Monday we may be able to announce it. I'm not really sure. We're, there's still a lot of moving pieces, but there's there's a bright future with this, and I'm really excited with, uh, with what's in store for us going ahead. All right, on that note, let's send it to a quick break, and then we'll bring in Eric Scopel with 247 Sports Duck Territory. All right, I am thrilled to introduce my very first guest in the history of the Scoing Long podcast. You can find him at Eric underscore Scopel on Twitter. He is the football and a women's basketball beat reporter for 247 Sports Duck Territory, author of Scopeladamus, co-host of Austin Audible's podcast with Matt Preem and Jared Mack, constant thorn in my side when we are together at media availabilities. Eric, how are we doing? Good. You know, I'm just happy you're able to make one of these, Zach. It's it's about time that you're able to. <laughs> My inside joke with Zach, because because he and his wife just had their first baby this fall, was that he was never at any of the games because he was he was taking care of his child and it was more sparse. All right, all right. Never at any of the games feels okay. very it, it, excessive. I missed like I think two games because I had a newborn child at home and z- zero road games. You never did the road games. Okay, games. zero never, road never games. Did the yes. road games. Hey, I got I got Oregon State in. <laughs> I traveled yeah, up to right. Oregon State. You were there. You, you made it. That, you made it that, that long, long winding road to Corvallis. You made it through that. Uh, All right. No, but good, so good I, to be I, here. Happy to be your first guest. I'll just I'll I'll, I'll say that. Pleased to be your first. guest. Absolutely. Yeah. I wanted to dive deeper into the women's basketball team, and there's obviously no better person to talk to. Um, as you said, I've I mean I've covered the Oregon's women's team in the past, but with a, a four month old child at home, I kind of had to to take some stuff off my plate. And so women's basketball was one of the things that I had to cut out for this season, at least. But um, I wanted to get caught up and kind of get the scoop from you. So where we stand right now, the Ducks are 12-4, and 3-2 and two in conference. They dropped a tough game to Arizona over the weekend and fell to number 21 in the AP poll. Uh, despite that, I've been really impressed by what I've seen from Kelly Graves and this team so far. I mean, they're playing with, I believe it's eight players right now that's been down to seven at times. But... Um, just so far overall what's your biggest takeaway from the first half of the season yeah I'm, I'm with you I'm pretty encouraged I mean I think the way you look at it here is um, you know the record is not what you'd like it to be but the four losses are all to top 15 teams at the time of the game being played I think a couple teams have moved up and down in the polls but all four losses to really good teams only one at home um, and, and I think that was maybe the most disappointing result was the UCLA loss um, just because Oregon's been so dominant at home and the crowd was fired up and they just couldn't couldn't really contend the way that you normally do in the middle of the game like usually this team makes its makes its move kind of in the second and third quarters and that's actually the part of the game where UCLA was the team having some success but no I think all in all you're, you're pleased with I know Kelly Graves has been really optimistic and um, you know about you know, even shocker today, yeah, well, that's just the way. He is. That's just his disposition. <laughs> that's nothing unusual. I've known him for a long time. He's always been kind of a super upbeat human being. So, um, you know, I think. I, I mean, I think one way just to measure it is just to compare. You know, I think last year to this year around this time of like last year around this time, you could just tell Kelly wasn't. I don't want to say wasn't having fun, but I think he was really 
wasn't as confident in his team. That there was some real downplay, a lot of injuries. I think the team chemistry was pretty lacking at times. And I think you know after the fact, you kind of heard more things trickle out about some of that. But um, this year, he just seems really upbeat. He really likes the team. Really likes what they're doing. And I think you have to be encouraged with what you've seen on the court. Again, they they've lost four games, all to to, to pretty darn good teams. And the game against Arizona to me was actually probably the most impressive, if you will, of the losses because they were really a couple plays away late from pulling that one out on the road in a tough environment before thousands of fans in, in Tucson. That's probably, along with Eugene, the two toughest places to play. And to come, again, a player here, play there from, from winning, I think you have to be really encouraged by it. And, and so, yeah, no, I think they come into this interesting stretch of the season now, Zach, where they play four straight games against teams they should win, should beat, I should say. Washington, Washington State at home, Oregon State and Corvallis, and then at Cal, they have to take care of business now to set themselves up to to maybe host. That's kind of where they're at. And then they've got remaining about four or five other games that are really, really tough that'll kind of determine if they can host or not. And if you, for those unfamiliar, if you're a top four seed in the NCAA tournament, you get to play your first two games at your home site. I'm very much different than men's basketball. So that's kind of always the barometer of success if you get a host that opening games you give yourself a really good chance especially Oregon like I said before with a great home court uh, to to advance so um, I think they're in position to potentially compete for that they just need to get over the hump and, and beat some of these top teams because they've been really close now four times and, and just haven't been able to do it so this question may be a little bit out of left field but I've I found myself asking it you know when watching the game so far this year how different do you think this team would look like if if Sodono Prince was on the roster, is on the court playing this year? Hmm. Um, it would help the numbers greatly. Uh, I don't know if you saw this, Zach. Just before we uh, started this podcast, Arizona State had to forfeit its two upcoming games because they don't have enough players. If you play, I saw if that, you have, yeah. Yeah, if you, if you like, and it's a situation where Oregon's not really, that's not a threat right now, but... Mm-hmm. Like, in the back of my head, I, I have thought of, like, gosh, if you roll a couple ankles here, they might have a, a weekend where they just have – they can't play the games. And with the expectations being very different in Eugene than in, in Tempe, like, that would be pretty catastrophic. So, from a numbers perspective, it would be great to have Sidra Prince, obviously. To get your numbers up, you'd have had uh, – I mean, for a, a big part of the season until recently, this past 10 days or so, they Philly Che, the 6'8 center, has been really your only true – Real, I mean, in my opinion, real only center on the roster and really only true real mm-hmm. post threat. I mean, Grace Van Sluten is more of a face-up player. She obviously has had success around the basket, but, like, you're pretty limited. And, and Sedona would have certainly impacted that. But, like, I, I think if I'm being honest, and I think there are people around the program who, who would probably, off the record, sort of speak to this of, it, it's probably been a benefit to get Philly Che all these moments and minutes mm-hmm. just, to, just because you see the development here. And I almost... And again, I don't know if they would say this, but I would say this. That like, I think the the upside of what Philly could be in March when they're trying to make a run at a tournament and, and try to do some things, it could be higher than what the upside of a Sedona Prince in March was, who is a player who had some great moments, obviously a much better offensive player than, than Philly. But I think if you talk about the greater impact and kind of the, the role you needed filled, like... It's been a long time since I've had somebody who's this dominant of a rebounder. Uh, you have to go back to Jillian Aline. Like even Ruthie Hebert was a very good rebounder. Like Philly's averaging twelve per game right now, and I think the highest Ruthie mm-hmm. ever averaged was about nine. So she's a, and she's six foot eight. She defends the rim. Like she does things that intangibly I don't think Sedona Prince really did. So I mean they're not very similar players at all. But because Sedona could shoot to fifteen feet with confidence, Philly has a hard enough time making a three foot shot at the rim. You know even <laughs> uncontested sometimes, which is 
again, she's pretty raw, but I, I, I don't know. I, I, I think I look at it and go, it's kind of been the fun part of the, like one of the more fun parts of the season for me has just been to watch her development of going from a player who you really didn't know what you were getting all this size and natural athleticism. And for those unfamiliar, very little basketball playing experience before she got to Oregon last season. Like this is a player who was totally off the radar and they kind of was discovered in a, in a smaller part of Canada by, uh, you know, one of the bigger, you know, basketball producers in the Toronto area. They brought her, her, her over and she ended up living with basically the head of this top club team in Toronto for her last year to get prepared. But that was really the extent of what she had in terms of like actual basketball preparation it was really one year of really competitive basketball playing in Toronto in that area. And before that, she hadn't really played basketball. So you didn't really know what you could have, but what you had there. And I, I think it's been very encouraging to see her progression to this point where up until the loss against Arizona, she had a stretch there of eight games where I think she was averaging like 16 rebounds per game. I mean, it's just been mm -hmm. incredible to watch that development. So um, long-winded way of saying like the Sedona thing hurts for sure because she could be capable of going for 20 points on a night, something Philly is nowhere near able to do. But with the way that the rosters, I think, composed and you have a lot of different other players that are capable of uh, putting up big numbers offensively and being focal points on a night here or a night there or with India Rodgers and Van Sluten on a consistent basis, I think you're probably okay having a more defensive-minded, kind of you know rebounding-centric, I guess, center in Philly Che as opposed to a, a Sedona Prince. Definitely, I like that answer. And that's that's been one of the more entertaining things about watching this year is watching Philly get more minutes and really kind of come into her own. I think I, I won't get Kelly's quote exactly right, but something he said, I think, earlier in the week or last week that he just can't wait, can't wait to see Philly kind of see how good she can be and that she doesn't know how good she can be yet, but he sees that potential in her. And it's it's been a lot of fun to see her kind of come into her own, like I said. Another person that's been, you know, incredibly exciting to watch. I know that you and I have talked a little bit about her off the, you know, when we were at media availabilities or anything. So I'll just kind of give you the floor here. Grace Van Sluten, go ahead. What do you see from yeah. her? No, it's, 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 it's a super unique kind of skill set. And it's one that, frankly, not a lot of schools in the country have of somebody who can handle the basketball and, and, and kind of almost run offense a little bit, but who, and, and really her strength though, is, is a low post scorer. Um, she has a little mid range stuff, but she is again with, with, with the absence of Philly being much of an offensive player as opposed aside from grabbing offensive rebounds, putting the back in of, of a pick and roll here or there of, you know, maybe a touch or two in the post every game or so where they try to set her up and, I almost feel bad at times for Philly because she does so much in the rebounding department. It's like, give, give her the ball. I mean, she had three shot attempts, I think, the last game. But Ben <laughs> is, you know, and, and she goes and she plays really hard. Then she gets touches the ball like a dozen times all game. And most of it's at the three-point line on these backdoor cut passes or just initiating offense. But Van Sluten is, is such a unique, I think, skill set. And, and again, a player that, that is so rare these days. And I, I think the thing that's encouraging there is, she doesn't seem afraid of the moment at all. I mean, I think in, if you look at their biggest games this season, those have been her best games for the most part. She had 26 points against Ohio State. She had 26 against Arkansas. She had, I can't remember off the top of my head, uh, well, she had 18 against, I think, UCLA and Arizona State. I think she had 18. She had, I don't recall what she's put up um, against Michigan State or North Carolina, but those are other games, or, or Oregon State. I think she played well in those games as well, but like, She's now been faced to get, you know, forced to face some some really good post players and has more than held her own. And the upside there, I think, is is, is really high because I, I I don't know if we're getting it 
exactly what her skill set will be in a couple of years. I know there's a lot of optimism that she can stretch it out to the three-point line and become more of a perimeter player. Um, right now, she's basically only playing at you know around the basket and you know playing a little high-low here and there. But there's going to be a threat. There's a time where she's going to be a threat to shoot it from from three, and that's going to change her game. And I think you know you, you run the offense right now through two, your two veteran guards and India Rogers and Tahina Pow Pow, so you don't need her initiate offense but i do think she has that skill set as well so no i i, I think van sluten is the real deal and you have to be really excited about i think in general like if you take a step back and i know people focus on the, the individual season but if you think about what the next couple of years could look like with uh with van sluten and shay down low as your as your kind of your center you know your, your bigs and then you've got chance gray developing you've got india rogers and tina Palpa with at le- each with at least one more year if they choose to use it like there's reason to think this team can be really, really good next year if they kind of fill out the rest of this roster. And I think that's the one thing I'm curious about is how does Kelly kind of navigate the, the offseason because they want small roster this year. It's worked out in that they've been competitive and I think the team chemistry is good. But I, I do wonder, like, next year, do you maybe want to have 12 or 13 players rather than starting the year with 10, which which I think to a certain degree has been more of a negative than a positive. But that he might disagree on that yeah that always seemed really interesting to me when he started the year with 10 it was like oh okay that i mean that really runs a certain risk that if you have injuries and you know we saw a mid-season transfer too which we'll get to later but uh, it could leave you in a tough spot down the middle of the year um you mentioned india rogers i want to talk to you about her she seems like she's really taken a step forward just in my eyes this year i mean her points per games are up her assists per game are up what's kind of allowed her to take this this leadership role alongside Tahina Pow Pow and just be really one of the, the dynamic forces on offense for this team. I think this is her second year and I don't yeah. think it was her team last year, right? Like, I don't think this team was looked at as being, you know, she was the newcomer. A lot of players were back. And again, m- most of them weren't very well established in terms of like Pow Pow and, and Sabali had been all conference players. The rest of them were all these highly rated recruits. I don't think there was really, but I, I think the team was kind of built in factions almost of like there were kind of cliques within the team. And Indy, I think, kind of was in between everybody else. I don't know if she really felt, I won't say she didn't feel like she's a part of the team. But I don't think it was clear to her that like the team only goes as far as she does. I think she kind of felt and maybe saw herself as more of a supplementary kind of piece there. And there were some bigger personalities in the team. And she's kind of a quieter person from everything I've seen. And uh, this year, you kind of see her come out of her shell to a certain degree, even in media situations since the start of the year, before the season started. I remember talking with her and she was, you know, you know, hey, this is I'm going to be more of a leader. I'm going to be more vocal. I'm working on it. But she says it in a small voice and kind of, you know, small. it doesn't say it in a way that feels like real, like I'm, I'm that I'm that person. But that's totally shifted, and she spoke with me today. And the last couple of times, she's got so much confidence, and um, I think the word James Creppy of the Oregonian used swagger, uh, which is a term that you know sure. I'll let I'll let James use. <laughs> um, but like just 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 so much confidence, and like maybe maybe just ease with kind of her role here. And Kelly Graves made it clear like she this this team is going to run through her. She is the the alpha, if you will. I hate that term, but like that's kind of the word you use in basketball. You kind of have to have one person that understands like. Game's on the line. It's going to be me. And I don't think that was really clear in past years. And I think she understands that now. And that's allowed her to, in these big moments, to really step up and, and play at a high level. How do you think Tahina is doing with that 
kind of transition because I, I mean, if you would have asked me or a lot of fans last year, we kind of thought Tahina would be that person and that she would be that alpha, if you were to say so, on the team. How do you think she's dealing with that and uh, kind of finding a role next to India? I, I actually think that's been kind of a, I don't want to say a concern, but I don't know if it's really, she, she, her play has been very up and down, um, mm-hmm. which, which has, I think, been a little bit disappointing considering how long she's been here. And the clear talent she has, like I've, I've always been, we've talked about it at, at media, we talked about Grace, we talked about Tahina. I've always thought she's really talented and can shoot the ball, handle the ball. I think she's got a good feel for the game. I think sometimes the thing that's frustrating is, is she'll have a stretch of, like she was leading the country through like eight games and assisted turnover ratio. But then you look at her last five and I think it's like probably, you know, I don't even know if it's over one assist to turnover. Like she's, she's turned the ball over more and been a little out of control. But no, you know, I think the thing with her is she's such a uh, kind of upbeat, lighthearted person from everything I've seen. Where I don't think this stuff really phases her in the same way, and that's like a that's like a good thing and a bad thing. Like I just it stands out to me. I remember after they they beat Southern Utah and they won by twelve, mm-hmm. but they were up like twenty five in the fourth quarter, and I think Southern Utah scored like seventeen of the last twenty five points or something like that. And I remember telling her like, "Yeah, they did they." they this is how the game ended. And she goes, what? They, they scored 17 in the last 25 or whatever it was. Wow. I can't believe that. And you're kind of going like, you think a team leader would be coming off the court being frustrated by that fact. And she just yeah. seemed like, Oh, wow, that's crazy. I can't believe they did that. And you're kind of going, eh, is that the right mentality? I just think her, 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 I think she's perfectly fine. And maybe I'm wrong. I think she's perfectly fine. Not being that again, the term I don't like to use the alpha or the leader. I think she's fine kind of being a little bit more of a, uh, a spark and a positive, you know, a, a source of positive energy as opposed to being the one that needs to have the ball and, and, and tell everybody, this is my moment. Let's, let's go. I, I don't know if that's necessarily as much her as it is India. And I think, I think Van Sluten and Gray as well look like players that similar to Rogers or kind of have that mentality, that kind of mindset that maybe like someone like a Tina doesn't have. And that's totally fine on a basketball team. You need all sorts of different personalities. I just don't know if I see her as being a, the type of person to to really kind of put a team on her shoulders and be tough and that's not to say she doesn't play hard or anything but i just I, there's different intrinsic right qualities each person has on the basketball mm-hmm. court and some of the stuff tahina has is maybe not the stuff that india has but she's still been a very productive part of the team without question and and the team when the when all three of those offensive players and i'm talking about rogers and and uh, uh, Dahina and, and Van Sluten are all playing really well. It's a really difficult combination of offensive players to stop just because they all do it in different ways and can kind of score from every level. So um, I love the talent combination. I just I just don't know if she's built to be kind of that leader, which, which again, I think is fine if, if Endy is going to step up and some of the other players are going to as well. Definitely. So this one, you can get into it as much as you're comfortable. I don't want to get you in a tough spot. Do you have any insight on the genocide midseason transfer? Do you know really what happened there? That kind of took a lot of people by surprise. I know, speaking for myself, I was surprised to see that news that she had won, left the program, or was away from the program for personal reasons, and then said, I think a week later, maybe even less, that she was transferring to BYU, correct? Yeah, that's the right order of events. She went down to San Diego with the team for the San Diego Invitational about a week before Christmas. She's with the team and the team dinner. There's like photos of her at the team dinner. And then she left the program before they played their first game the next day. Um, Interesting. Strange, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. I, from everything I've gathered, I don't want to like get into too much of it. From everything I've gathered, I think yeah. it, was, it was as simple as she had expectations for what she, her role was going to be. 
and that wasn't what the reality was going to be here. And again, I mentioned a moment ago, like Pow Pow, Rogers, and Gray. Those are the three starting backcourt players. Those are the people she's competing with for minutes. Well, all three of them are starting above her, playing more minutes than her to begin with. And you fast forward to 2023-24, the next season. And Rogers, in theory, is a senior, but she could use the COVID year and come back. And Pow Pow would be a senior, but and I think it's expected to come back. Like, I think the plan is, the thought right now is that all three of those players will be here next year. And I'm guessing there was a moment of, well, I don't know. Like, if, if I'm not going to start now and my goal is to be a starting guard and play a big role and I'm not going to be one next year, shouldn't I maybe take a, a peek at going somewhere else? So, um, yeah, that, that, that one hurt in the moment in part because I think she's a good player. Like, I mm-hmm. really liked what I saw from her early, on the early going. I definitely a unique skill set of I, I had the stat at one point but she was like 18 for 22 on two-point shots like in her first nine games like she just like didn't miss layups and she was but she was mm-hmm. and they were difficult degree of difficulty shots of reverse pivots and drives and left-handed finishes all sorts of things and you're kind of going wow she's really a good finisher did not play very well like the four or five games before she did enter the portal and end up at BYU and I think part of that might have just been sort of the realization of hey Maybe maybe I'm not going to get to play as big of a role as I want, and that's that stinks. And now I've got to figure out what I want to do. And if you're not totally focused on the mission, I think that can impact your play on the court. So I, I think that was a pretty big loss in the short term and in the long term. Certainly something they can, uh, you know, they, they've been okay since she left. They, they have lost, I guess, three games, but those have been against really good teams. Where I'm not sure how much her, her role would impact things, but. The, the bigger thing is the same thing with the Sedona deal where the numbers are just too too short to, to have anybody take off and leave or, or get hurt. So um, they currently have nine players that are going to play this season. A 10th player, Sammy Wagner, who's a 2023 mm-hmm. signee, uh, is enrolled. She was at practice on Wednesday, so she's here. But she's, she's using as a redshirt year. She's not going to actually play with the team. She's just going to be here to practice and kind of get herself prepared for next season. Um, so that's kind of an added just a – Maybe a thing for listeners who aren't familiar, but yeah, they've got nine players and it would certainly help if they had more. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. We'll get you out of here on this one. It's a generic question, but I'm curious to hear your answer. What do you see as this team ceiling? I mean, we get into March, we get into Pac-12 play. We talked about potentially hosting the first round of those games uh, at Matt Knight. Yeah. Do you expect that from this team? Do you think it's a disappointment if they don't end up hosting and if they don't end up making a, a two or three round run in the tournament? I think they've shown they can compete with everybody. They just haven't beaten the good teams. And I, you know, I was actually talking to, to James after, after practice today about how the goal is to, to host and, and to go you know, from there as far as you can. And obviously if you host and you win your first two games, you go to the Sweet 16. And that sets you up maybe for a deeper run depending on matchups. But I have a hard time seeing them host if they just can't beat any of the good teams. Mm-hmm. Their resume is lacking in terms of like the, the top tier quality of win. Like they've beaten Oregon State, they've beaten USC, which are I don't know if Oregon State is still top fifty, but were top fifty net wins in the conference. They had a win over Michigan State, a win over Arkansas, who are both kind of in that rough range as well. They've got some decent wins, but they don't have a marquee win right now. Like, mm-hmm. and that has to change. And the good thing is they have all these opportunities. They go to they go play at Stanford. Arizona comes back here. They host Utah. They go play at UCLA. That's four big-time opportunities to, to beat teams that are currently in the net ranking top 25. So you can win two or three of those games 
you're going to give yourself a great chance of hosting. But they have to pull through and win those games. And, and they can't slip up either against some of these lesser teams. I think conference is pretty good top to bottom right now. There's, there's, Arizona State is your weakest team by a pretty good margin. I think Washington, who they play next, is probably the other team you look at and go, that, should be a, that has to be a win. But there's going to be some t- tough competition here, and I think for this to be a success yet to get to the you know to host, they have to not slip up and they have to win at least one or two of these games against these big time teams, these teams that are ranked really highly right now. Um, and I just haven't seen them do it yet, so I, I, I it's hard for me to I, I've seen them be really competitive. I actually really felt like Sunday was going to be the day where they kind of pulled through and, and finished one, and they just didn't do it. Right? They just kind of just down the stretch, a couple things here, a couple things there. Arizona shot the heck out of the ball. Credit to them, but. Ultimately, you come away from that, I think, kind of going like, oh, that's, that's, that was a missed opportunity. And they just can't suffer any more of those. You can't suffer more missed opportunities, not, at least not very many, to try to host. And to your second part of, from an expectation perspective of, would it be considered a success or an acceptable season for them to have maybe a second round loss in the tournament? Maybe they're a six seed and they go and they lose to whoever the three seed in the region is across the country somewhere. I think that'd be kind of disappointing. Personally, um, you know, you can kind of dress it up however you want, but this team does have the talent and has proven that they can. Like, I just think the fact that you look at them and go, in early part of the season, they almost knocked off North Carolina, right? In January and, and late December, they were on the, you know, knocking on the door to beat Ohio State, UCLA, and Arizona. This is a team that you would hope with some continued improvement, and you also have to factor in other teams getting better, but with the continued improvement, would be able to win enough of these kind of games to be a top four seed to host to get to the second round or sorry the second weekend of of the NCAA tournament. So if they don't get there, you kind of wonder why. And I think if they don't get there, the whys are going to be the team really didn't take enough steps forward. And so for me, that would be a disappointment because I, I, I genuinely think right now you look at them and go, if they're as healthy as they can be, right? If they have all the numbers they have, they can compete with most teams, most games, like most teams. There's like probably. Only a, only a couple teams in the country that I don't think they can actually stay you know stay afloat playing, and that's the type of team that should be dangerous in March. So, but we'll see. There's still a lot of a lot of games to be played, and certainly a lot of opportunities to prove that they can get over the hump. And like you said, I mean, there's I think you said four games coming up here that big games, but very winnable games. I mean, things that they they should win and be able to set them up for a late run. Uh, Eric, thank you for coming on, being the uh, first official guest of this podcast. I'm happy to have you on. I hope to have you on uh, later in the basketball season, too, as we uh, get deeper into the season. Yeah, be fun. Let me know. I always love talking women's hoops. And you know Matt, he's so adverse to talking women's basketball, he just doesn't want to do it. So we never talk about it. I know. I feel like I just, I just gave you this runway to just, just go free and just, just talk your heart out about women's oh, hoops. It was, it was such a cathartic experience. Here I get to be on a <laughs> podcast platform and talk about my, my, my biggest love, which is the Oregon yeah. women's basketball team. It's a bit hyperbolic, but like, yeah, I mean, that was, I have fun talking about women's basketball. I know I'm probably one of the few All people right. who really – you care as much as I do, but you know, it's, thanks for letting me have a I love to, it. to wax poetic on Oregon women's basketball. Absolutely, maybe we'll uh, maybe we'll get together for a Monopoly night soon or something. I don't know when I'll see you next, but that might be fun. Monopoly night, <laughs> make it happen. All right, thanks, Eric. All 
All right, I'm really excited to be getting this guy on to talk some basketball. If you don't know him, his name is Andy Patton, at Andy Patton CBB on Twitter. Uh, I've been lucky enough to have him work with me at Duxwire for probably the past year or so, maybe a little bit longer. He also hosts Locked on Zags, Locked on College Basketball. Uh, he writes for Score Zag Score as well as Pitcher's List. He does yeah. everything, folks. So I'm thankful that he had time to take out of his busy schedule and talk a little bit about the Ducks. Andy, how are we doing? I'm good, Zach. Thanks for having me on. I'm really excited about this new uh, new podcast for you. I'm pumped for you. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. It's been a lot of fun so far. Um, so I know your view is more, and when you're not talking about just Gonzaga, your view is kind of more macro college basketball rather than micro and Oregon. But, um, you know, I was wanted to talk about college basketball, and there's few better people I could think of to talk with you. So um, if you're ready, let's get into some ducks. You ready for it? Absolutely, man. Love talking ducks. Hoop. Let's do it. All right. So it's not hard to say that the first half of Oregon season – probably didn't go as planned it was a little bit disappointing they got home losses to uc irvine utah valley they had that abysmal loss to colorado last week um right now they're unranked they're nine and seven on the year three and two in the pac-12 you have them ranked and you're at seventh in your pac-12 power rankings on ducks wire uh simply what do you make of the first half of the season for dana altman and the ducks yeah, injuries have been have been the huge story here for for Dana Altman's team. I think uh, you look back at years past, and Oregon has often seemed to have slow starts, and they kind of kick it into gear in January, February. Uh, I don't know if that's a specific product of something Dana Altman does, where he's making adjustments in the middle of the season, if it's just coincidental. Uh, but this year, I think you can point to a lot of their struggles and say, look, they haven't had Keyshawn Bartholomew. Uh, they just returned Jermaine Kuznard very recently. He's been a nice addition for them. Uh, Dante's missed time. Like, you, you just, it's hard to, to be successful when you have so many guys who are injured, so many guys who are hurt. You're relying on, on, on younger guys. You know, Kalel Ware, excuse me, has been very good, but uh, he's been asked to do more than I think the, the expectation was on him at the beginning of the season just because of some of those injuries to the front court. So I think that's really the main story. I think that there is a little bit more to it than that. And I think there are some legitimate concerns about roster construction in general and, uh, you know, just kind of the, the direction of this team is going under Altman. But I think a lot of the issues this season specifically can just be chalked up to, to not having guys healthy. I think that's definitely a good point. And one that, that might be something that is starting to turn around for the Ducks. I mean, mm -hmm. you, you mentioned Jermaine Kuznard came back a couple nights ago. Uh, mm -hmm. He's getting less of a minutes restriction on him right now. I was actually at practice yesterday, and Keyshawn mm -hmm. Bartholomew was playing, and we talked mm -hmm. to him, and he said, yeah, he's, we're hoping that we can get him back for a few, a few minutes at least on Thursday, more right. on Saturday. Um, but speaking of these upcoming games, the Ducks have a big homestand coming up Thursday night against Arizona State, Saturday against Arizona, who... I'm not sure what they're ranked now after that loss to Washington State. You may know that off the top of your head. Um, but what are, what's the confidence meter that Oregon could go 2-0 and in these next two games or even 1-1? One uh, I think one and one is absolutely possible. I'll be honest. Uh, I on the Locked On College Basketball podcast episode uh, publishing on Thursday, we we do a segment called Upset Watch, where we talk about potential uh, unranked teams that could be ranked teams in the coming weekend. And and I actually talked about Oregon over Arizona. 
uh, on Saturday as a potential upset game to watch. It's at Matt Knight Arena. It's always good to play uh, on your home court against really good teams. Uh, Arizona has shown some some weaknesses, quite honestly. I'm, uh, as a Gonzaga person, a huge, huge supporter of Tommy Lloyd and the job that he has done, but they've taken some pretty ugly losses, uh, and I think Oregon, especially now if, if Bartholomew's healthy, like they have a real chance of securing that one. I think Arizona State is a, a really up-and-down team. I mean, they got absolutely boat-raced by a pretty average San Francisco team. They were down 45 points at one point <laughs> to San Francisco. It was a, a horrific Horrific performance by Bobby Hurley's team, and I don't. They're they're certainly not that bad. And I think you know you compare the two rosters. I think Oregon and Arizona State are probably very close. I would give Oregon a benefit just because I think Dana Altman's a better coach, and I think they have better athletes. But this is going to be a tough trip, uh, or I guess a tough homestand for the Ducks. Uh, I think. Uh, Arizona has a ton of depth in the front court into Bellis and Umar Balo. Uh, Arizona State's, again, Frankie Collins, really, really talented point guard. I think that these are two tough teams for Oregon, but now that they're getting healthy, they're getting some guys back. And like I said, we've seen Altman kind of turn things around uh, in mid-January, in February, in years past. And uh, even taking one of these two games gives them a little bit more momentum um, after that nice win over Utah. But, man, if they could take both, which I think is – I'm not going to say likely, but I think that it's possible that they take both. And if they do that, man, they're this, you know, I don't know if it's going to turn them into an NCAA tournament team, but it's very, it's at least putting them in the conversation of, hey, this is a team that could run through the Pac-12 conference tournament and maybe they, they get themselves a chance to steal a bid. I can guarantee you that if they do end up beating Arizona on Saturday night, John Rothstein will be tweeting that Dana Allman knows how to align Rubik's Cube. So you can, mm-hmm. you can take that one to the bank right now. Yes. Um, so 15 conference games left, 15 games left before the Pac-12 tournament. What do you think are reasonable expectations? I mean, 11-4, and four, is that what's needed for them to get into the tournament? Or are they going to have to, you know, run through that Pac-12 tournament if they want a chance to play in March? Yeah, it's really tough. The bubble this year is really kind of all over the place. Uh, I think you're, you're seeing a couple mid-major conferences that have two or three legitimate teams that could compete for a spot, which always kind of makes the bubble a little bit, it shrinks the bubble for some of those teams like Oregon, like, you know, Utah and Arizona State, who I think are kind of squarely in that bubble conversation as well. The Mountain West has like four or five teams out West that that reasonably should be in that conversation for a tournament spot. Uh, The WCC last year had three or four teams in that conversation this year. It looks like they're kind of just down to the the typical two uh, in Gonzaga and St. Mary's, so that kind of opens up a bit of a gap spot, but I think 11, 11 and four is probably still not enough. That makes, that's an 11 loss Oregon team. Um, Not very many of their losses are that bad. The Irvine loss really stands out. Obviously the Colorado loss and the Utah Valley loss uh, are not good ones. Colorado's not a terrible team to lose to, but they got absolutely spanked. The way you lose. Yeah. (laughs) It was horrific, but like you, Houston's maybe the best team in the entire country. UConn's one of the top five best teams in the entire country. Michigan State's been a little bit up and down, but that's far from a bad loss for Oregon. So uh, I think they're in an okay spot, but they their their margin for error is fairly slim. I think if they go 12-3, and three, win one or two games in the Pac-12 tournament, even at that point they probably still need a few other bubble teams to, to lose or, if, or a, a limited amount of teams to steal bids. Uh, in order for them to get a chance to make it a tournament. It's not impossible by any stretch of the imagination, but uh, the, the margin for error is pretty darn slim. So it feels like, at least last year and this year, this team really goes as Will Richardson goes. I mean, if he has a good game, they're usually they're in it. If he struggles and has a poor shooting game like he did against Colorado, they're going to really have a tough time winning that. 
what's your mm-hmm. confidence level that he has what it takes to kind of lead them on the second half run from what you've seen from him during his career at Oregon? Yeah, you know, I, I remember following him really closely last year, uh, you know, when I was covering the team, and I kind of I felt like I was on the Will Richardson beat because I was writing a lot of articles about him, and, <laughs> and he's he's really inconsistent, and it's it's really frustrating for a guy in his fifth year, a guy who's done so many good things for the program. He's been a double-digit scorer for four of his five seasons. Uh, obviously, he's had some injury stuff, which has been a factor for him, but... Uh, I'm I'm concerned about the fact that his three-point shooting has dropped significantly. He's a career 38% shooter. was over 40% um, two of the last three years. This year he's at 32%. Uh, a similar volume of shots. It's not like he's taking way more attempts or anything. He's just not knocking them down. Uh, he's a fifth-year guy. He's a potential, you know, he's a professional player, whether it's in the NBA or, or overseas. He's, he's going to play pro basketball. Uh, one of the more talented guards to come through Oregon in a while. But, uh, yeah, the, as, the, as he goes, the Ducks go. And he's been remarkably inconsistent this year. Uh, I mentioned it already, but I think the return of Bartholomew will help a ton. Uh, I think he's a a steadying presence. He's a good point guard. He's obviously got some Pac-12 experience from his time at Colorado. I think, uh, you know, I like Rivaldo Soares. I like some of the other guys they got coming off the bench. I'm excited about uh, Cousinard being back because I think he's also kind of a veteran steady presence that they need. But um, this team is too reliant on Will Richardson. There's no doubt about that in my mind. Um, and I think one of the ways that they can succeed more is by finding some other guys who can step up when Richardson doesn't have his best stuff. Because quite honestly, uh, if the hopes and dreams for Oregon reside on Will Richardson being consistently good from here until the rest of the season, I'm just not sure that that's going to happen. Yeah, I, uh, I think that might be a dire situation. Yeah. It's funny that you that you brought up three-point percentage because, I mean, not only Richardson, the whole team mm-hmm. is just yeah. really, really struggling from deep. I mean, I mentioned I was at practice yesterday. I was mm-hmm. making jokes with the other reporters because there was a stretch where they missed 11 straight threes in practice. And when they practice. finally made one, it was like, wow, they made one. It was. It's not like these misses were just like, you know, in and outs. They were just... They weren't weren't great shots. So, mm-hmm. uh, you touched on Kalel where a little bit earlier. Mm-hmm. What have you seen from him so far? And what I, the feeling for me? I mean, I'm not a, a basketball novice like you are, but I watch mm-hmm. him play and I think, man, he would benefit so much from another year in college before mm-hmm. going to the NBA. But that's not really how the game works anymore. I'm just curious what you see from him. Yeah, you know, it's funny because I, I, I read a lot of mock drafts. I'm consistently kind of keeping up on, on how people are viewing, a lot, especially a lot of the young freshmen, and, and comparing where to some of the other young freshman bigs that are, are getting a lot of attention. You know, Kyle Filipowski at Duke is a big one. Dariq Whitehead also at Duke is a big one. Gigi Jackson at South Carolina. And where is consistently kind of right in that conversation and often ahead or kind of right next to those guys. And I don't mean disrespect to him because I think from a talent perspective, he probably is about as good as those guys and has a lot of upside, but he's not performing as well as them. And part of it is that he's been on a minutes restriction. I mean, he's only been playing about 20 minutes per game. Uh, but we haven't seen the outside shot materialize in a super consistent way. I mean, you love seven feet guys who can shoot from three. And I think where is that guy? And I think he will be that guy in the NBA. I really, I believe he's going to be a, a stretch five at the next level. And that's why teams are so enamored with him. But 
at the end of the day, he hasn't done it yet. He's shooting 32%. He, he's been fine. He hasn't been great. Um, but he kind of falls into that category of if you have big men who can stretch the floor, can shoot from deep, and can block shots and be a legitimate rim protector, they're going to get attention. You know, They're not all going to be Chet Holmgrens, who, who kind of are, are completely dynamic unicorn-style guys, or Victor Wembignana, of course, who, who's you know kind of taken the, the amateur basketball world by storm with what he's been doing overseas. But where does fit that archetype? He is that guy. And with more seasoning, with more time, he, he can become a guy who, who is like a, a, an NBA caliber starter or a, a really high-level role player. I don't think he's coming back. I understand the sentiment that he could or arguably should. He would put, he would put up better numbers. He'd be in a, a more consistent spot. But uh, right now, his performance hasn't really moved him at all on mock drafts. He hasn't dropped. He hasn't risen. He's kind of stayed right where he is. And if that maintains, then it, I'm not saying it doesn't matter what he does for the rest of the year, but I would be pretty surprised if, if there's a second season for, for where, regardless of whether it's, you know, one of those things that, you know, he, he could probably improve his draft stock, but there's significant risk that you don't too. Yeah, definitely. And you, I think one of like the most enticing things is just thinking about if he came back and you were to pair mm -hmm. him with KJ Evans and Mookie oh, Cook yeah. and Jackson yeah. Shellstad and what else, whatever else they have in the yeah. transfer portal next year, it's like, that would mm -hmm. be a very, very fun team to watch. But yeah, yeah like you said, I, I don't really think it happens. Mm -hmm. Uh, Looking forward, you kind of touched on this a little bit. What do you think the ceiling is for this team? I mean, if you were to say a best case scenario, what do you think? Mm -hmm. where, how far do you think this team can go? Yeah, I, again, it really depends on, on, on how quickly they can get Barthelme back in the mix uh, and if everybody else can maintain health, can stay healthy. I mean, again, we saw Dante put up a really nice game against Utah. Like, that's huge. You need that. 17 and 12 for him. Uh, and, and you beat a team like Utah, a team that's right on the bubble and probably on the right side of the bubble at this point, although Oregon might have bumped them off of that spot. Uh, I think, you know, they got two more games against Arizona, two against Arizona State, one against USC, or excuse me, one against UCLA, uh, two still against USC, I think. So. Yeah, they haven't played USC yet. Yeah, so they, they got a lot of good teams still on the calendar. Uh, I think Oregon can beat USC. I think they can beat Arizona State. Uh, I think that they could take one from Arizona. I'd be pretty surprised if they took both. Uh, they got US, UCLA at home. That's still going to be a tough one. UCLA looks like a really, <laughs> really, really good basketball team. Uh, so I'd be kind of surprised if they took that one. Um, I, like I said, I think the ceiling is, is three losses for the rest of the, the Pac-12 slate. If they can do that... They can only lose three more games, and ideally they're not any ugly ones. A close loss to Arizona, a close loss to UCLA, and then maybe one other loss in there puts them in a position where where they could realistically be right on that bubble conversation. Uh, teams like you know people who who are participating in Selection Sunday who help make that stuff they do like to look at your recent success, your recent performance does matter. It doesn't matter all that much necessarily. Uh, but, you know, they're not going to say, well, if Oregon rattles off 12 wins in a row, they're not going to say, well, you lost UC Irvine in November. So, you know, you're at, like, that's not the way that the, the committee necessarily works. And especially when injuries are a factor. Uh, I think this team has the ceiling of being a team that sneaks into the NCAA tournament. And at that point, you know, if, if they're, if they're rolling, if they're playing well, if Ware uh, has kind of found his stride as a college basketball player, maybe they sneak a game, maybe they, 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 they move into the second round. I don't know. I, I wouldn't be too optimistic that they're doing a whole lot more than that. But at this point in mid-January, I think a lot of Oregon fans would be quite happy if the end result is this team making the big dance. I mean, with last year ending up in the NIT, yeah, I think anyone mm -hmm. saying that they want to tune into March Madness and have a team to root for, they'd be really yeah. thrilled with that result. And Absolutely. we've seen, like you said, I mean, Dane Altman teams sometimes in March, mm -hmm. that's not mm -hmm. someone you want to face. So 
Um, no. Speaking of Dana Altman, we talked a little bit about it earlier. Uh, what do you kind of make of his last two years? I know a lot of yeah. fans have been frustrated. I've seen on Twitter fans starting to bring up his age a little bit and just kind of, yeah. kind of questioning the the future of this program and the roster mm-hmm. construction and his utilization of the transfer portal. Um, I'm just curious, what are your thoughts on Altman at this point in his career? Yeah, I, I'm I'm intrigued by Dana Altman and, and a little confused. <laughs> I think that's kind of the best way to put it. He is very clearly a fantastic recruiter. And people can say, oh, it's Phil Knight, it's, uh, it's Nike, it's whatever. He's a good recruiter. They bring in a bunch of five-star talent. They bring in a bunch of four-star talent. They bring in guys who, who do succeed at the next level. Uh, they have succeeded at doing that. And I think... Um, Part of the issue for Altman, though, is that I don't know that you're necessarily getting the most out of a lot of those players. If you were to take a list of of all of Oregon's five- and four-star recruits over the last three or four years, like some of them have been great. Some of them have been very good. Some of them haven't. Some of them haven't panned out. And obviously injuries played a factor for somebody like Bull Bull. And there have been a, a few other guys where it's just like it just maybe it wasn't a good fit. Maybe it wasn't a, a, the right situation. But at some point, you got to look at, hey, this guy's bringing in a lot of talented players and or a lot of players who are really highly regarded by, you know, 24-7 sports or rivals or whatever. But if it's not manifesting in results on the court, then you have to have a serious conversation about that. You know, we're not. We're not at John Calipari levels. We're not at that situation where uh, you're bringing in the top ten, top you know four of the top ten players in the class. In the class, but you're not winning games. You're losing to 15 seeds. You're losing to South Carolina at home, like just happened uh, with Coach Cal. Like we're not there yet. I think Data has done a decent job with the talent that he has brought in. But it's fair to be like, hey, could we be doing more? And, and you mentioned the transfer portal, and I think that's a that's an issue. I think they, they brought in some fine, like, again, Bartholomew is a good player. I, I'm, 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 I've mentioned him a handful of times because I'm a big believer in what he can do. He was very good at Colorado. He's young. That was a, a nice addition for Oregon. I'm a big believer in Jermaine Cousinard as well. He, he's been hurt, obviously, so we've only seen two games from him. But he's shooting 40% from three in two games, which is a heck of a lot better than just about everybody else uh, that the Ducks have. So I think some of the additions have been fine. Quincy Guerriere was a nice addition in the transfer portal as well. Some of them have been a little bit meh, have just been fine. Devion Harmon I thought was going to be a better addition for the Ducks than he was last year. Now he's at Texas Tech, and I know some Texas Tech fans who are kind of like, oh, he's just fine. And that's fine. It happens. It is one of those things. But I think for Dana... You can bring in as many high-level recruits in the world, but if you're not getting the absolute best out of them, then the next thing you need to do is you need to be really good at bringing in guys in the transfer portal because those guys are proven. Those guys have played at the Division One level. A top 10, top 15 recruits, yeah, they're probably going to be good. It's pretty rare for those guys to like astronomically bust, but I, I would rather get guys who have played two, three years of Division One basketball supplement those guys around your roster. You can see Dana's trying to do that, and this year I think it didn't quite come together in part because of some of the injuries, but I think you need to see him prove that he can supplement a roster with transfer portal additions, with some of those high-level guys coming in and performing as expected. And up to this point, from a consistent standpoint, we haven't really seen him do that. And if that doesn't keep happening, if he's not getting the best out of those young guys, if he's not getting high-level additions in the portal, then you start having start having to have some serious conversations uh, in the front office. I wonder over the past few years how much the loss of someone like Tony Stubblefield and Chris mm-hmm. Crutchfield, how much those really impact the the player development, like you said. Because, yeah, there mm-hmm. there have been some really talented players that, that came through and they just didn't quite see the mm-hmm. ceiling that we expected. And that's something that I was talking to some friends on the Flock Pod. I'm mm-hmm. really worried that people are going to start 
realizing how good of a de- developer Mike Meninga is because he's a great mm-hmm. coach. And I think, yeah. I think it's kind of impressive that, you know, Altman's been able to hold on to him for this long because mm-hmm. he's a really, really good piece. And if they were to lose Mike, I would, uh, that would worry me quite a bit. Yeah, no, I, I think that assistant coaches and player development staff often get overlooked when when kind of evaluating a, a program overall. People tend to pin everything on the head coach, and, and it's happening a little bit at Gonzaga after losing Tommy Lloyd. Of like, are some of the things that Gonzaga is struggling with related to not having this guy who was an associate, you know associate head coach for ten years, assistant coach for twenty years, and is very clearly talented at what he does, considering what's been going on with Arizona the last two years. So, uh, yeah, Oregon's lost some really talented coaches in the last few years. Hopefully, they don't lose uh, any more because. Uh, I think that Dana needs some really, really good development staff around him uh, I, because when when they're not there, you can kind of see that some of these guys maybe aren't quite living up to their expectations. Yeah, absolutely. Like we said earlier, Oregon starts a, a very important homestand on Thursday with Arizona State, Saturday night with Arizona. What is, do you know what Arizona's ranked right now? Uh, I do not. I know in Ken Palm they are 11th. I'm not sure where they are ranked okay. in the actual AP. They were but they were seven before they lost to Washington State. I I have not checked back in the rankings since then. But um, all right, well, Andy, thank you very much for coming on. I uh, always appreciate talking to you. I always appreciate your great work with me at Duxwire. I will, like I've said before, I will take you when I can get you. I know you are a very busy man, but one of the best in the business of what you do. Thank you for coming on today. Hey, thanks, Zach. I appreciate this. And again, I'm excited about the podcast and I'm looking forward to coming on again. All right, that's going to do it for us uh, today on Scoing Long. I know it was a long one, but hopefully we got a lot of good info and uh, insight out to you guys going into the weekend. Thank you again to both Eric and Andy for coming on and talking hoops with me. Uh, I plan to come back on Monday morning. Uh, Right now we're going to recap the weekend of both uh, men's basketball, women's basketball. They've got some important games coming up, so... Uh, I'm sure we will have a lot more football to talk about, uh, transfers, NFL decisions, recruiting. It's, you know, there's more recruiting visits this weekend. I I learned in the middle of taping that the number two running back in the 2024 class, Jason Brown, is coming to Eugene for a visit this weekend. So I'm sure we'll have more info on that. Uh, thank you guys for listening and following along as we get this podcast off the ground. If you want to check out more of my work, you can find it at www.duckswire.usatoday.com or follow me at Zachary C. Neal on Twitter. Uh, I'll talk to you guys on Monday. Till next time, take it easy.